Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. On today's podcast, we are going to be continuing with our storytelling uh, section, and we're going to be speaking about anthropology and plausibility structures and um, what they have to do with us telling our stories, Hmm. um, telling our stories to ourselves and the stories that we tell others about ourselves. Hmm. So, Kurt, um, I think right off the top, I do need to tell you that my dog is at my feet, um, (laughs) you know, as as I'm here alone. Well, doesn't she has a harness? She has a harness on her, which paralyzes her. So I... (laughs) Oh my gosh, don't tell Peter. (laughs) Well, it doesn't hurt her. It's just a regular, comfortable harness, but you put it on her and she doesn't move. Wow. She just doesn't move. So I'm hoping that that's going to stop her from barking or anything else. But if you hear dogs barking, um, don't worry, no one's being hurt. Can you use those for children? You just put them on them and they don't move? Um. I, I haven't tried it. I don't know that. I think that somebody stronger than Peter would probably be knocking on my door if I did. So I think I'll pass on that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gracious. So, Kurt, um, let's talk about anthropology a bit. So what, why does anth- what does anthropology have to do with um, our, our present stories? Yeah. You know, it's uh, first of all, it, it's uh, so that our audience is aware of this. We're you know we're not just trying to sling fancy schmancy scientific terms around. The word anthropology refers to the study, really, of what it means to be human. Like what, what, what when we understand, like what is a human being, and how do we come to understand that? The reason it's important for us to explore that and to have some sense of it is because. A lot of us are living, taking for granted who we are and what we do and how we operate and so forth and so on without recognizing that the whole notion of studying anything, but particularly studying what it means to be human, is always something that takes place within a particular community context. In other words, this notion of science, what it tells us about the world, whether it's chemistry or biology or anthropology or psychology, whatever those things are, that science, that study always takes place within a particular community of people, a particular human tradition. So, for instance, there was a time when uh, most people, most scientists, if you will, although they weren't called that at the time, if they were, to, if you would have asked them about the uh, geography and the geology of the world, they would have said that the world is generally flat. Well, that notion that the world was flat didn't just spring up just all by itself out of nowhere. You know, people were told this by other people, and those people believed it, and then they passed that information on to other people, and that was a particular community lens through which they understood the data that they were looking at. You look out on a flat horizon, and it looked like the world just ended. And of course, you could sail your boat out there, and the horizon would keep going, but like we knew that it's somewhere the end of the world would be reached. But somewhere along the line, somebody starts to you know, learn something else or study something. They've got some questions about this tradition, some questions within the context of the community. And those scientific changes over time take a long time to happen because 
the communities are really resistant to this kind of change. And so everybody from Copernicus to Galileo and so forth and so on, this notion that the world is actually not flat but round is something that took a lot of time. So it takes place in the context of a community that's telling a story even about the science that we're learning. And when it comes to anthropology, that particular kind of science, we have to recognize that even when it comes to the neuroscience that we're talking about on our podcast, how the brain works and what its purpose is and meaning and so forth, what's really important is that we're not understanding that science in a vacuum. We're understanding that science in a particular time in history. And when we think about, you know, the way most scientists, if you were to take a poll of most scientists these days, not everyone, but most scientists would say that the whole notion of God, the whole notion, let alone the notion of Jesus and Christian faith, doesn't have any role in science, doesn't play a role. These are two separate things, that religion and science are separate things. And we've come to learn that that's the case, that there's a separation between the science that we learn that tells us the truth about the material world and our religion, so to speak. But what's really important is that as the there's a famous philosopher of science by the name of Michael Polanyi, and he once famously said, there's no such thing as science. There are only scientists. Meaning that the data doesn't speak for itself. People have to talk for the data. We are the ones who have to tell the story about what the mind actually is. And, you know, with interpersonal neurobiology that we've been talking about, you can talk about the mechanics of how the brain works and how the mechanics of in between interpersonal interactions, but you can't talk about its meaning. Like the science doesn't talk about its meaning. The science doesn't tell us anything about the meaning of what it means to be human. We humans have to decide that, and we do that within a particular story. And that moves us on to this notion of plausibility structures. And a plausibility structure, again, it's another term. Peter Berger was a sociologist back in the 1950s and 60s. He's still living, who talked about this notion that in the context of our culture, there's always going to be this kind of assumed set of principles that we're all living by, things that we just kind of grow up drinking the Kool-Aid, understanding. We understand, for instance, we, we grew up and someone says, oh, the sun rises and it sets over there. And But, you know, they're telling our two and three and four-year-olds that the world is round and we're showing those kids that, and they're assuming that's the way it is. But 1,500 years ago, parents would have been telling their kids a very different story. And the kids grew up with a certain authority. There's a, there's a, there are people who are authorities who are telling them this information. The plausibility structure that is most dominant in our world right now is this plausibility structure of science and how scientists think. And so when we think about truth, when we think about the question of how do we know things, we think about it in terms of how scientists think about how we know things. We test things. We do research on things. I'm over here, and I'm going to study this thing over there. And this thing that I'm going to study over there, I can figure out data about it, and that's how I know things. I am the one who's in charge of the experiment. I'm asking the questions. I'm setting everything up, and then I'm going to decide what those outcomes mean. And that's one way of knowing things, and we believe that the 
only way, practically, we think the only way that we can know things is the way scientists know things. And that gets us to the question of authority. We don't ever learn anything on our own without there being some authority outside of us that helps to confirm that thing that we're learning. This plausibility structure, this undercurrent of culture that kind of tells us what's true about the world. We now have a generation of people who are growing up on social media. And so the medium of social media becomes an authority in people's lives. And by authority, I don't mean that it's necessarily giving people good information or a good experience altogether. But there is a certain sense in which we have subjected ourselves to a particular uh, online experience, and that online experience is giving us, it's, it's an authority in our life. It is telling us, it's creating this, the situation in which we believe the world is supposed to operate. But I can tell you this, that if you were to suddenly take that social media platform, if you were to take every social media platform and, and have it disappear, people's worlds would suddenly be turned upside down. Not just because they wouldn't have access to Facebook, but because the way they are coming to learn about the way the world works would shift completely. And so we have this notion of what does it mean to be human, anthropology, that leads us to recognize that science is important, but science is actually always constructed in the context of a community. Like, who are the people that are telling us the truth about who we are? And whatever particular community that is, is the one that determines what the plausibility structure is, what the, the, the governing ideas are that we just kind of tacitly assume are true in the world. And that, again, asks the question, it begs the question, who are the people who are helping me form the story that I believe is true about the world and about my life? And about my life. My wife and son and I are we're, we're currently watching this uh, series that's uh, been out for a, a number of years now called Friday Night Lights. And we love this little drama. Yeah. But it is a striking example of anthropology and plausibility structures that if you grow up in the small town of Dillon, Texas, football is everything for a certain portion of the population. It's everything. It determines everything. You don't, you don't go to class and they teach you this. It's in the drinking water. You come up believing this. And what happens in the opening, you know, in, in the very opening uh, episode where the star quarterback has a significant injury. What happens when something takes place that shears off that storyline completely? What do you do when the evidence of what you're really experiencing in your life tells you something very different about the world that you thought you were living in that was given right. you by, that was given to you by a certain authority? And the reason that this is important for us here today is that. We are all, as we've said before, we are all storytellers, and we're all telling stories in the context of this bigger story that is around us that we're often not even aware is there. And so it's really important for us to be curious about what is the community within which I'm learning to tell my story? Who are the people to whom I've given authority? 
to tell the story about my life, with whom I'm going to collaboratively tell that story. And so, for our listeners, as we're learning about what it means to be known, we come to discover that, gosh, most of the time, the story that we're being told by science is that the only way that I can know things is if I go out and discover it. But we come to find out that to be known is a completely different way of knowing, coming to know things, that does not involve scientific study. It does not involve research in that way, but it actually involves our being willing to vulnerably open ourselves to other people who are curious about us other people who are going to ask us questions, other people who are going to make observations, who are going to be empathic with us, who are going to mentalize us, who are going to know where we are. And when we are seen by other people in fresh new ways, they give us, that interaction gives us the opportunity to understand and tell our stories very, very differently. And of course, this is what we believe the gospel is all about, that Jesus comes and starts to ask a whole set of questions that nobody's ever asked before, and starts to make a whole set of claims that nobody's ever claimed before, not just about himself, but about us. And in so doing, give us the opportunity to change completely our anthropology, our plausibility structures, our stories. my question <laughs> you wanted to know how it was that i you know got to be so good looking but not nearly as good looking yes, as you that, that was what it was so what i'm what i understand is just to, to, to break it down a little bit is that the the plausibility structure is kind of like a, a gatekeeper right yeah. it's like you know uh, is this possible Mm-hmm. This belief mm-hmm. um, based on and that and we get that from our culture, mm-hmm. from our from from what we're seeping ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so is plausibility structure. Is it always cultural? Or is it also individual? Do we have our own plausibility structures? That's a great question. I, th- I think it's I think it's both. And I think that we are embedded in it and we are contributing our own particular part to it. You know, when Copernicus like made his discovery and his claims, it was unique. It was different. Mm. He was something caught his attention that had not yet caught the attention of other astronomers of his day, something that, you know, was going to be different. And so he added that. But that put some chop in the water for the people around him because, interestingly enough, it had significant implications, not just for what's going on with the stars, But in their day, it had significant implications for what it meant about God and how people understood the world had been made and what the terms were within which, you know, that God had made the world and that if man is the center of the world and the earth is fixed and everything goes around the world, well, what if if that's not true? Is man now not the center of the universe, right? You know, we've, and so, you know, we have have people who, who grow up with a certain plausibility structure within their own families, for instance, right? So I think of a number of people who come into my office and, you know, they will tell the story the way they think it's supposed to be told. I may have mentioned before that 
a patient who comes in and talks about growing up in a loving Christian home. And that's the story that this person tells to everybody. If you were to ask him, you know, tell us about your life, you'd say, well, I grew up in a loving Christian family, and my, my parents and my siblings, my father was a deacon in the church, and that's how he tells the story. But when you get to the details of his life, and you say, well, tell us some more things about your family. For instance, who was in charge of discipline in your house? I've this, this question of, like, that's a great cocktail party question that you can just ask somebody. If, if things get really dry, just who is, who's in charge of discipline in your house? I really want to know that. My patient went on to talk about how, it, you know, ultimately it had to be his mom because anytime his dad got involved, his dad became very angry, even brutal to the point, right? But this is a guy who's a deacon in the church. And he would become brutal in particular because of one of my patient's siblings that really was had, had a troubled life. And so you have this story that he tells himself and other people. I grew up in a loving Christian home. And yet the plausibility structure, right, the the Kool-Aid that everybody's really drinking is that life in intimate settings is not safe. At some point, somebody's going to throw a grenade and you never really know when that's going to happen. And so you keep telling yourself, I mean, this loving Christian home is a way to cope with things, but you're coping with what's real. And sooner or later, as was the case with my patient, even though so many things in his life were going so well because he was working really hard to, in some respects, make sure that everything was working as it should, he found himself having panic attacks and he found himself becoming extraordinarily anxious, anxious and he can't sleep at night. And if you look at the surface of his life, if you look at the, you know, the businesses that he's started and sold and started and sold and started and sold and the money he's making hand over fist and so forth and so on, you think like, well, what, what could be wrong with his cat's life? Why is this guy in your office anxious as the day is long? panic-stricken. Like, what's the problem? And what you find is that we can tell ourselves on the surface, just like our friends in Dillon, Texas, can tell themselves on the surface, life is football. That's all that matters. Until something happens that reveals that that's actually not the case. You know, one of the things that uh, we were, as we're recording this, you know, we're recording this in the, you know, we're now in the eighth or ninth month of COVID. Yeah. And people have often asked, well, you know, what's COVID doing? What's it causing? And I said, well, COVID's causing a lot of things, but as much as anything, COVID is revealing things. It's revealing the shallowness of our souls. It's revealing the flimsiness of our interpersonal relationships. It's revealing that we're not nearly as durable as we'd like to think that we are. And yeah, in that, I, you know, I, yeah. Now I just want to say that, that, that so we're, you, you know, we're, we're in this COVID and we're also, you know, as we're recording this, we're less than a week away from a, from a major election that has, um, you know, factions and, and fractures and, and all that going on. And so, you know, uh, I was thinking this week that um, I haven't been paying attention to my anthropology, my true mm-hmm. anthropology, so much. Mm-hmm. I've been I've been spending my time so much, so much of my time uh, 
you know, trying to stay on top of the news and uh, and the anxiety and the, that this causes me. And I think it's revealed some things about myself yeah. that, you know, um, some, maybe even some, some better habits I need to have mm. Um, mm. that, that would help me to focus on those things that I need to be focused on instead of, um, instead of becoming so overwhelmed with, with, uh, anxiousness and anxiety and, and, you know, uh, and believing that, that things are far worse than they actually are and you know, right. that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, and this, this, I think also Pepper reveals how, you know, we've, we've been living for 500 years with this growing and intensifying set of assumptions that at the end of the day, ultimately I, each individual is the master of their own destiny. Right. And first of all, uh, brain science would categorically deny that, that we don't operate like that. We can, again, like my patient, we can tell ourselves a particular story while the undercurrent real story is very different. And the undercurrent real story for us is that as human beings, we are deeply interpersonally connected. We deeply depend, we are interdependent creatures. We need the voices and the sight lines of other people in order for us to survive, let alone flourish. But we have set up a plausibility structure as well that tells us that we are masters of our own destiny, that we can survive on our own. And then we construct technologies in which we practice trying to do that. So social media, for example, is not something in which we like on a Sunday morning where we gather for worship together, social meet typically, not in COVID often, right? But typically we don't gather, you know, 50 people together for a social media party. We don't say, hey, we're all going to like, like scroll through a Facebook feed together in the room. No, we're off on our own in our beds with our phones, with our laptops, with our screens. We are off separate And we have a technology that enables us to practice a plausibility structure that says, as an individual, I'm the master of my own destiny. I self-identify. I am this. I am that. And, of course, COVID comes along. And it eliminates all of the things that we've been doing to actually and on the on, to, to make up for that. So on the one hand, we're doing all these things that put us in isolated positions. Yeah. While having enough things that we do, we go to bars, we go to parties, we go to church, we do enough things to do to keep our brains like hydrated enough, as it were, but still way under hydrated. And then COVID comes along and shuts off the water supply completely. Yeah. And our plausibility structure in which we've come to believe that we are individually masters of our own destiny is being revealed for what it is. It's a sham. Yeah. And the thing about interpersonal neurobiology that's, I, that I find to be so beautiful and so compellingly reflective of the gospel is that it is saying to us, no, as it turns out, we deeply need the presence of other people. And in fact, we deeply need the presence of other people with whom we believe we have great difference. And this is, of course, the gospel. This is Paul's letter to the Galatians. This is this notion that 
you know, in order for me to flourish, I need different parts of my mind, my prefrontal cortex, my brainstem, my temporal lobes, my limbic circuitry, all of which functionally as separate entities of the mind are very different from each other. The neural activity is very different. The parts of the brain are very different. And you know what? At one level, if I'm just, you know, using my prefrontal cortex, the part of me that is the thinking brain, the reflecting brain, the part of my brain that, you know, thinks about consequences and so forth, like, I'd come to think I could get along really quite well without my brainstem. The part of my brain that is constantly in fight or flight, the part that makes or with my amygdala, the part that scares me to death, the part that makes me worry, the part that has my heart rate up, the part, like, like I don't enjoy those things. I think I'd rather, like, not have the, <clears throat> the fire alarm or the smoke detector in my house. I don't really, it's, it's, it's irritating. I don't want that. I don't want to have to get along with that part of my system that is so different from me. But in fact, I need that part that is different from me. And so, you know, for those of us who, you know, by the time we hear this recording, uh, the election will be over and we will be in the jet wash of that. We will be wondering, like, what are we now, who are we now becoming with, in the result, in the wake of that election, who, how are we now going to be? What are the kind, what's the kind of person that I'm going to become as I'm living in a world with people who are different than me? Well, it's, it's important that we recognize that we, again, we've had a plausibility structure that teaches us that you should be able to do life on your own. And as it turns out, not only can I not do life on my own, I actually need people in my life who are different from me. You know what's really interesting? You were talking about the social media and all of that, and and when we get on social media, or even when we get in uh, to the internet for our news sources and that kind of thing, we end up in an echo chamber that is pitching back to us what we're looking for, and so most of the time, you're not even getting opinions that are different than yours right. unless you go looking for them. Right. Yeah. Right. And. Consequently, I don't ever have to encounter distress. Right. And growth of any kind, whether you're talking if you're in the weight room, (laughs) whether you're talking as a child whose parent is saying no to them, whether we are a Democrat having a conversation with a Republican, whether we are believers having conversations with people who believe other than that, it, it, growth is always going to take place in a context in which our neural network system, in which our musculoskeletal system is being stressed beyond its current capacity. Now, we're not looking to overwhelm systems, but we're looking for systems to have more weight put on the bar. And if I want to do this really well when it comes to, you know, uh, lifting weights, I want to do this in an environment where the weightlifting is safe, where I have good instructors, where I have people that can help me do this well. And when it comes to what it means for us to become fully human. So when it comes to anthropology, this notion of what does it mean for me to be fully human? 
What's the story that I'm embedded in that tells me, that gives me the answers to that question? What does it mean to be fully human? Part of what it means to be fully human is to encounter people who are not exactly like me in order for my growth to emerge and their growth to emerge. But the most effective way for me to do that is in person. The most effective way for me to do that is not online. It is not by looking at Facebook. It is by long lingering dinners Hmm. with good food and good beverages in which if we are going to encounter our differences, we're going to do it in a way in which we, you know, it gets back to a previous conversation that we've had about beauty like we look at our enemy, we look at the other, at the one who is different than us, and we assume that they are a problem that we need to be solving. They are a pathology that we need to diagnose and treat. We don't imagine, oh my goodness, they are someone with whom I can create beauty with. What's the next new artifact of beauty that God wants me to create with someone who is different from me. And this, of course, gets back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were naked and unashamed, as we've talked about, this notion that there's differentiation. There's male and female. There's myself and others who are different than me. And they are on the brink of this world of creation of beauty. And before they were able to really fully put on their their mantle, fully put on their vocation, you know, things went sideways. And we continue to do that now. And now when we encounter those who are different than us, my anthropology tells me that like life is about survival. Life is about me being like me and being with other people who are like me. Life is not about creating beauty with those with whom I find great difference. So this doesn't mean that in being with others of great difference, either party necessarily has to give up their beliefs, give up with who they believe themselves to be. But it does mean that we are being challenged to become living, breathing, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in the presence and in community with those with whom we have great difference. But I can't do that by reading about it on the internet or watching a YouTube video. Uh, doesn't mean that that can't be helpful, but at some point I'm going to have to get in the gym, right? I can't lift weights online and I can't become a flourishing, uh, you know, master of human relationships by remaining in my echo chamber, as you put it. It's not ever going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that this time um, of COVID and, you know, it, it, it has stunted us. You know, mm-hmm. it stopped us from being able to be together physically. And, and uh, that for me is, is such a great loss. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I struggle with it. I right. really do because right. it's, um, I miss people a lot. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah, I didn't. Um, I have a, go ahead. No, go right ahead. I, no, I have a question about. So, so going back to the to the uh, to the patient that you were talking about that was telling himself that he came from a, a fine Christian home. So, would you say that uh, his plausibility structure was broken, um, 
and that and that needed to be reset. Like, like, is that the right way to look at it? I mean, because because he was telling himself something that just you know wasn't true. Correct. And on one level, he was trying to believe that. Right. So right. Yeah. Well, I think when when we think about that, we think that the plausibility structure includes the whole package, the whole package, which is that. Uh, the undercurrent of life in my home is that intimacy is dangerous. Okay. And that's a sense that I'm living with. I don't wake up in the, you know, it's not like he was waking up in the morning and saying, this is a dangerous place to live. He's not saying that. He's not aware of that, but he's living as if that's true. But the fact that it's dangerous means that he has to find a way to cope with that. So intimacy is dangerous. That is one level of, of, of the plot. That's one layer of the plausibility structure. Another layer of the plausibility structure is I am ultimately responsible. As it turns out, this was a person who found himself often in the middle of some of these family arguments, trying to help fix things, ne- negotiate things, navigate things. And as it turns out, so th- another part of his plausibility structure then is like, I'm ultimately responsible for making peace whenever there's war going on. It's, it's ultimately up to me. Nobody else is going to step in and do their part. It's always going to be up to me. That's also part of the plausibility structure for him. And then another part is that, like, if I can just, you know, it, it's kind of like if I, if I can tell this story, that this is a loving Christian home, there might be some moments when I get some relief, some momentary relief. So I'm going in to see a psychiatrist about this problem that I have called anxiety. It didn't occur to this guy. Smart, well-educated, kind, funny, engaging, people love this cat. It did not occur to him in the least that his anxiety had everything to do with the home in which he grew up and in this person, you know, in the, in, in you know, the marriage that he, that, he, that, he, that he found himself in, his anxiety, his plausibility structure would tell him that anxiety is just this separate thing. It's like, it, you know, it, it's kind of like, oh, like going to the dermatologist and saying, oh, I have this growth on my hand, on the skin. It's not really me. It's this thing that's happening to me, like anxiety. It's not, it's got nothing to do with my story or my life. Like it's, it's this thing that I'm experiencing. And, you know, what do we need to do to like remove my symptoms? And in this case, we started to explore together, well, what is the story in which you believe you're living? And he would say, at his most conscious level, well, I'm a Christian, and I am in a Christian marriage, and I grew up in a loving Christian home, and that's about a nickel deep. That's the tip of the iceberg, and underneath the waterline is the part of his story, the part of his plausibility structure, the part of his anthropology that he's come to believe that really to be human means you've got to survive dangerous interpersonal interactions. And if they become fraught with fighting, you are ultimately responsible and in charge of that. And people are going to be upset with you if you don't do your job to make sure that you put the fire out. And so in many respects, this then also extended into the work that he did. Like he, like, you know, like yeah, everything that this guy does, he, he's just so good because he works so hard, right? He works so hard at doing the next right thing. Everybody loves him. His companies have flourished, but it also means sometimes that it's not always easy for him to uh, have harder conversations with people because he's got to make sure that everybody's okay. 
because his plausibility structure tells him that interpersonal distress leads to bodies being thrown around the kitchen. And even though that's not what he tells me consciously, that in fact was the story of his life. And you can't pretend that that's not part of what's going on. And as such, our listeners, I I want us all to be curious about not just what's the plausibility structure of my own personal life, but what's the plausibility structure of the larger world in which I'm living? And how closely does that reflect the story of a gospel, the story of of a God who loves us, who says, do not be afraid because I am with you forever. And who says, I'm making everything new. You know, for my friend, the whole notion that God's making everything new was a theological idea that was not new to him. But in his chest, in his brainstem, in his limbic circuitry, even in a lot of his middle prefrontal cortex, that was not a viscerally, palpably felt reality. His reality was that he is alone in the universe, and it's his job to keep the universe from chaotically disintegrating. And he's the only one who can do it, and nobody's coming for his aid, to his aid. And I think there are probably a lot of us that walk around actually living as if that's the way the world really is. And then we get in our echo chambers of social media, and it only gets reinforced because I'm not hearing anybody different from me with whom I have the opportunity, because they're different, to create beauty and goodness, to get in the relational weight room, put more pressure on my chest, my quadriceps, and allow God to use that process as a way for goodness and beauty to emerge in a world, in my world, in ways that otherwise it might not. But the beautiful thing is, uh, Pepper, is that, you know, I think about COVID and I, I, my mind continually goes back to the story of the Jews and their exile to Babylon. I mean, in their day, I mean, you know, Babylon was, was the COVID for the Jews, in, in around 580 BC. This kind of viral horde that descended and carted about 80% of the population off to Babylon. 900 miles. They walked. Carts. Donkeys. Can you imagine walking 900 miles? No. no. I'm, no I'm just, no. No. I'm not walking 900 yards, let alone 900 miles. And there were some there who, when it happened... You know, they said, oh, you know, they had certain prophets that would say, look, this is only going to last for a short time. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar is going to get out, he's going to get you out there in the desert. He's going to learn that he doesn't want to have to be like carting you people all the way across the desert. And he's just like, I'm sick of this. Just, just go home. And Jeremiah said, no, that's not what's going to happen. Uh, this is God's revelation of who we are. It's God's revelation. COVID is a revelation for us. And in it, it, you know, God said through Jeremiah, look, when you get there, build houses, get married, plant gardens, have kids, give your kids away in marriage, pray for the peace and the health of the city. 
Become light and salt where you are. Live in this moment. Live in the community that I'm making you to be, not in the one that you've come from, because the one you've come from, it hasn't been in the weight room very much. It's lived with a very different plausibility structure. And the hope for us is that when we are in the business of having conversations with people that can enable us, that can who can enable us to tell our stories differently, uh, we get to that place where uh, life can be different and it can be durably different uh, in good mm. and beautiful ways. That's what we're striving for. That's what this is about. You know, this whole being known. That's the goal. That's the journey. Right yeah. on. Thank you for your time today, Kirk. This has been great. You're welcome. We'll pick and, this uh, up again. Yes, indeed. I think I think your dog is ready to be deep paralyzed. Yeah, she's she, <laughs> the harness needs to come off. <laughs> she's she's standing like a statue, wanting me to come and take that harness off of her. I better get over there. All right. Hey, buddy. Thanks. Man, Love you. Always good to be with you. Love you too. Next time. Talk to you soon. All right. We'll see yep. you. Bye. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and music is provided by Noah Needleman. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on our website, beingknownpodcast.com, or you can find us on social media at beingknownpod. Be well and be known. Be known.